Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I am recording this topper from John Favreau's kitchen. So if you hear Leo running around, gnawing on a bone, you're welcome. He's a really cute dog. This week on the show, we have Lisa Monaco, who recently left as Barack Obama's Homeland Security Advisor and Chief Counterterrorism Advisor to the President. This is the scare the shit out of you episode, but I think you'll find it interesting. Lisa handled crises for President Obama from terrorism to avian flu to everything in between. She's a fascinating person. She has a legal background, which is different than a lot of the intelligence or State Department or military people you might see in these jobs. She's a brilliant person. She's a lot of fun to talk to. Tune in. It's going to be great. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Reclaim your time now that you can listen to four weekly ads-free episodes across Pod Save America and Pod Save the World. There's never been a better time to join Cricket's Friend of the Pod subscription community. The marketing people say that listening ads-free saves you up to two hours of ad listening each month. Imagine the possibilities. You know what you can do with two extra hours a week? You can listen to Listen to more podcasts. Exactly. Ah, Two more episodes. That's two more episodes. Yeah. Get more stuff in your brain. Yeah. Get more stuff in that brain. More stuff and content in there like uh, like you're a foie gras gras goose. (laughs) (laughs) Become a member today. Go to cricket.com slash friends now to learn more. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. My guest today is Lisa Monaco, all the way live from San Francisco, California. Thank you so much for being here. It's great to to have you on the West Coast out of your cave slash dungeon that you worked in for four years. That must be a nice feeling. It's great to be here, Tommy. (laughs) It's particularly good to be outside of my cave from my West Wing (laughs) office where I spent the vast majority of the last four years. Yeah, the beautifully named Lower Suite. Exactly right. Nothing sweet about that office. Nothing sweet. Um, Thank you so much for being here. You most recently served as President Obama's Homeland Security Advisor and Chief Counterterrorism Advisor. I was hoping to start with your legal background because I think Mm -hmm. that's really interesting the way you got to where you were. You held a number of senior roles at the Department of Justice, including Assistant Attorney General for National Security, the Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General. These titles, man. Longest title. FBI Chief of Staff to Bob Mueller. That's much easier to say. 
Um, you were even on the Enron task force and co-led the effort to prosecute those creeps. Yep. And so I think the question here is, a career in law or a DOJ could go a lot of different ways. And I'm wondering, what point did you decide to focus on national security and, and what got you there? So, you know, it's interesting. You, you got to be open to really interesting paths. And I was incredibly lucky. So I'm coming off of 20 plus years in government. Uh, the last four of those in the White House, and before that, about 15-plus in the Justice Department and some of the roles you mentioned. And I think the common thread is working for and with people mm-hmm. who you respect. Right. And so uh, for the vast majority of my career, as you said, I was a lawyer, I was a prosecutor in, in senior uh, positions in the Justice Department. And I think I made the switch to really focusing on national security when I was at the FBI. Mm -hmm. So I had been a prosecutor and worked on the Enron Task Force, and I had, coming off of that, I had the opportunity in 2005, the end of 2005, to work for Bob Mueller. It's kind of a legend in the Justice Department and the FBI, a really um, consummate professional integrity. When he walked into meetings, he commanded respect. He commanded respect, always did what he thought was right, guided by the facts and the law. And when I had the opportunity to work with him, and he's worked across administrations, right? Mm -hmm. So he was um, an appointee in the Bush administration, but then President Obama famously asked him to stay on. And in fact, they passed legislation specific to him uh, to extend his term at the FBI. So he served 12 years as FBI director. Amazing. So I had the opportunity to work for him. And uh, this was at the beginning of 2006. And the FBI was in the process of transforming itself, quite frankly, from being, you know, the traditional G-men looking at a crime after it happens, Mm -hmm. investigating it and prosecuting the bad guys. Really important. But this is post 9-11. And the focus had shifted to one of preventing the next terrorist attack. And the FBI was at the forefront of that. So they really had to change their orientation. And Bob Mueller was leading that. And not an easy task. And so what I saw and what I was able to help him do is try and transform that organization, help him do that, and transform the Justice Department to being a real player in the national security space. And so I spent my days helping Mueller do that Mm -hmm. and focusing on terrorism threats. And it was quite obviously incredibly interesting, but really mission driven. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of really fascinating jobs in the law. Mm -hmm. uh, And I've been privileged to have a number of them. But when you get to marry those interesting legal aspects with your job basically being to help keep the country safe, (laughs) that's a a pretty pretty good mix. That's pretty cool. I mean, you know, it's really interesting you got to that you made that point about the way the law and counterterrorism overlap because one thing that drove me nuts when I was <laughs> at the White House, and I think it probably drove you nuts too, was there were some people, often Republicans, who would act like somehow terrorists were too dangerous to be prosecuted in our courts or like Article Three courts weren't a tool in our justice system. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the courts were used in the counter in counterterrorism and 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 what your take is on this idea, the suggestion that maybe they could only be put in a military commission or killed on the battlefield. Yeah, you know, I also was frustrated by that debate. And we saw this play out, particularly in President Obama's first term. And it's strange, right? Because all of a sudden, as you said, people were wondering, you know, what's the utility of putting a terrorist in in what we call the Article Three courts, our criminal justice system here, when for years under prior administrations, Lots of terrorists had been prosecuted, and and our prosecutors and agents, FBI agents and law enforcement officials, were doing the job. And 
I've always felt like we kind of got off track Mm -hmm. and got into this false debate about should you apply a, quote, military model Mm -hmm. to the terrorism fight or a law enforcement model to the terrorism fight. And the truth is you got to do both. You got to do it all. And what we tried to do is apply what we call the all tools approach. So understand where the threat is, where it's coming from, use intelligence and law enforcement and anything you can to understand where that threat's coming from, and then pick which tool is going to be the best one to disrupt that threat and keep people safe. So maybe it's diplomacy, mm-hmm. maybe it's a military airstrike, maybe it's law enforcement and the prosecution of terrorists. And what we found is actually our courts, our criminal justice system does a really good job. Really? There's a <laughs> lot of terrorists who are spending their days in windowless cells in America, in Colorado, quite frankly, in the supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. And they were put there by dedicated men and women who track them down. And sometimes over a long period of years, the, uh, the long arm of the United States is, is not one that easily forgets. <laughs> right. And put them through the, our court system and recognized and honored our traditions and our rights and the way uh, we do things over centuries of our democracy, and then put them in jail. Yeah. I wouldn't want to wind up in the Southern District of New York if I were a terrorist. The case. odds of you <laughs> making it out a free man are, are pretty uh, pretty slim. <laughs> pretty slim. DOJ has been in the news a lot lately, for better, for worse, for confusing, yeah. mostly. Um Sally Yates, the acting attorney general, was fired by President Trump because she refused to enforce his Muslim ban. I know this is delicate. You probably worked on this. You probably can't get into it. But I'm curious if you have personal thoughts on what she did and whether it was appropriate to fire her. And then I guess more broadly, I think the when people read about an attorney general telling the president no, that sounds weird. I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you could explain to people how DOJ is designed to be independent and immune from politics. Yeah, you know, I, I watched this unfold now almost four weeks post my government role and been fascinated about, <laughs> about what's been written about this and the debate here. First, let me say Sally is a career professional. I worked with her for years and she served Republicans and Democrats and her guiding focus has always been what does the law say mm-hmm. and um, how is the role of the Justice Department best executed uh, from a law enforcement perspective. And I think she acted in the best interests of and in the best traditions of the Justice Department here. And maybe it's best for your listeners to kind of step back for a second Mm -hmm. and say, what's the role of the Justice Department? Everyone knows it's a cabinet agency. The head of the cabinet agency is called the Attorney General. But more broadly, it occupies a really unique role in the president's cabinet and in the executive branch. It's the only cabinet agency that has really a dual function. It's both a policy implementer And it has to exercise an independent function when it comes to investigating crimes and prosecuting criminals. And in that latter role, it should be and is, and when it's operating in its best traditions, it is completely separate from and independent from any political influence. So what does that mean? It means the president or anybody who works for him doesn't get to call up the Justice Department and say, hey, prosecute this guy. We don't like him. And the Justice Department and the law enforcement agency that works for it, that's part of it, the FBI, needs to be completely independent when it's exercising that prosecutorial and investigative role. And when it's looking at the law and saying, here's what our best view is of the law. And I think what Sally tried to do is give her best judgment. And when it looks like 
at least based on the public reports, she may not have been provided this executive order uh, with time to actually do a real detailed analysis. (laughs) Something nobody was. (laughs) And that's what the public reports look like. And she had a duty, I think, based on the, the order that she wrote and what I've seen written about it, to provide guidance to the career line attorneys, that's what we call them, the people who are on the front line representing the government in court, to give them guidance. Now, you know, the debate is, well, she should have just resigned if she disagreed with the policy. And that certainly is a something that was available to her. But in this instance, uh, it looks like she wanted to give guidance in her role as acting attorney general to say, I'm not satisfied that this is entirely uh, the best reading of the law here. And she was trying to give her folks, it looks like, the best guidance she could. It's kind of standing up for her team. Yeah. Speaking of the DOJ and and FBI in the news, there there are these reports that former National Security Advisor General Flynn's contacts with Russian officials or the Trump campaign had contacts with Russian intelligence. And and these, these reports are just confusing and nuts. And I... I assume you can't get into the specifics here. Feel free to if you really want to. <laughs> but when I think about this stuff as someone who used to work in national security, my brain can go from thinking, man, were these clowns sloppy and careless, and once again, the cover-up is worse than the crime, to is this the biggest conspiracy in U.S. history hiding in plain sight? And I'm just wondering if you can right-size my paranoia <laughs> uh, or maybe help us understand like how much people should worry here as this unfolds. So. I think one of the things that's most concerning about this, and you're right, I'm not going to get into any details, and I've been uh, now out for four weeks reading the same (laughs) press reports you have been, but I think the the thing that I see emerging now is you referenced chaos and confusion. Yeah. And that's a lot of what we're seeing over the last couple of weeks, whether it's in these stories or how this immigration executive order was put together and then rolled out, causing a lot of confusion internationally amongst our partners, et cetera. So the theme here seems to be chaos, seems to be Mm -hmm. confusion. And the thing that concerns me as a national security professional is what is that doing to the view of the United States and the world, and most particularly amongst our adversaries? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people focused on the reports over the summer and the Russian attempts to interfere in our election. And we had an unprecedented statement by the intelligence community and the Department of Homeland Security, both back in October and again in January, saying, we believe that there was a Russian effort to interfere Mm -hmm. in our election. And whatever else the debate was about the motive here, the intelligence community was unified in its view Mm -hmm. that part of the Russian motivation was to sow discord and uncertainty <laughs> and chaos and lack of confidence Job in, well done, guys. <laughs> in our democratic system. Yeah. So I worry that all this chaos and confusion is feeding right into our adversaries who would like nothing else than to see the U.S.'s role in the world as the anchor of the world order be disrupted. Mm-hmm. And that's not good. Right. Yeah. And, and let's be clear. There were there were chaotic moments when when I was at the White House sure. and when you were governor. But when I when I think about the NSC and the Homeland Security Council, like the rigorous processes you guys ran on issues that were nowhere near the headlines, was mm-hmm. always to me the most important part of your job. Right? Like yeah. you you know you pick up the newspaper and there could be a civil war, or, you know, some sort of something or worse, genocidal actions in South Sudan. I just think to myself, are there meetings being held on that? Is there a process? Mm-hmm. Is there a team in place to even? think to manage these things. I just don't, 
I don't get the sense that there is. So you're exactly right. I mean, the, the particularly the National Security Council staff, which people should understand, is populated 90% by career professionals. And I've used the word career professionals now a few times. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. That means subject matter experts who, coming from the Department of Defense, the State Department, the Justice Department, the intelligence community. These are people who don't change their job or their stripes depending on who's in power mm-hmm. or which president and which party has been elected. These are career professionals who don't change out each every four years. And thank God for right. our democracy that they don't because they're around to help guide the new team and provide subject matter expertise. Right. And what I worry about is that those people aren't being drawn upon. Their expertise and their their perspective isn't being heard in the rooms Mm -hmm. like the Situation Room where it needs to be heard. And it's that kind of upending those processes, like you said, that can really cause some problems when you're trying to manage a whole set of different crises around the world, whether it's North Korean missile launches, uh, Russian ships off our shores on the (laughs) East Coast, to uh, very, very real terrorism and cybersecurity threats. Yeah. Shifting gears from scary to terrifying. Uh, I want to ask you. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it's a theme. No, no, this is this is where we live. The threat of terrorism. I think I've been in meetings with you where mm-hmm. we've seen intelligence reports about threads or plots by Al-Qaeda or ISIS, and you walk out thinking, uh, will I ever sleep again? And then the rational side of my brain remembers that you're literally hundreds of times more likely to die from falling off your roof when you're cleaning the gutter or get hit by a car. And, I, and I'm wondering... How do we help people right-size their fear of these threats? And do you think we can ever apply that right-sizing to government resourcing of these threats? Yeah, it's a really important debate to be having. And I think that one of the things we have to do is acknowledge people's fears Mm -hmm. as we're talking about this. So I think sometimes we get lost in this debate about um, in saying, well, you're more likely to die in the bathtub than Mm -hmm. you are from a terrorist attack. And the numbers bear that out. But I'm not sure how relevant that is if people are scared or they're scared for their children. And one of the things I always tried to think about when uh, was the president's Homeland Security and Counterterrorism Advisor is in helping him talk about this and helping us shape our response, meeting people where they are Mm -hmm. in in how we talk about this, I think, is pretty important. So you don't want to discount people's fears. Right. Um, particularly as uh, we're seeing ISIS and others make such use of social media to propagate those fears. But the reality is, as you said, that the terrorist threat has really changed over time. And we are a lot better prepared and able to identify and uh, stop terrorist attacks like the one we saw in 9-11. And that is due to tremendous work by professionals across administrations. But the terrorist threat has also really changed over time. And what we're seeing now is the use by ISIS uh, with social media and the like to inspire people to mm-hmm. violence. And that's harder for law enforcement right. to find. Right. And that's the thing we've got to adjust our approach on. Yeah. I mean, I've heard you talk about how we used, you know, we used to fear sleeper cells and now we fear the lone wolf. And I, I think what you're saying is that speaks to how the threat comes from their ability to spread propaganda mm-hmm. and inspire people to conduct suicide operations or what have you, even if they've never gone to Syria and have that formal training. So I'm wondering, 
you know, how do you, how did you guys try to stop an ideology like that that's just seemingly dispersed throughout the planet? It's that's the big challenge we face, right? We're in a new phase, what I call a new phase of the terrorism threat. As I said, the the complex attack, although there are um, terrorist groups out there who are still very focused on trying to do the type of complex and spectacular attack that we saw mm-hmm. on 9-11. But we've built up a very good apparatus and structure to identify those. Uh, now, the new phase, though, is this ability to inspire individuals. So they don't have to travel to Syria, Iraq, or in the past, Afghanistan and Pakistan to get training uh, and then come back and commit their attack. They're getting inspired by ISIS on social media to do it and to do so with whatever they may have. Uh, ISIS very famously put out in one of its recent magazines, if you can attack with something, use whatever you Mm -hmm. have wherever you are, whether it's a truck or a knife or a gun. So that's pretty scary stuff. And we've got to recalibrate our approach. So how do we how do we do this? How do you attack an idea? Well, frankly, you got to undercut it. Right. We have to counter their messaging. And what we found over the last couple of years is, quite frankly, government's not the best messenger. Yeah. <laughs> and if you if it's got a government seal on it and it's trying to rebut ISIS's narrative, it's probably not going to be the most effective um, way to to uh, to counter their message. Their target audience mm-hmm. is not going to be your target audience. So what we did is we said, let's treat this like a media campaign. Mm-hmm. We provide, we in the government can provide a lot of the support and the, we can bring our convening power together to say, hey, Google, YouTube, Facebook, and others who are good at um, using these platforms to spread certain messages. Let's combine their power with moderate imams and regional voices who are going to be more credible to those who are susceptible to violence. And so once we in the government kind of stepped out of the way and stopped trying to be the messenger, but rather to support and animate credible voices, I think we're onto something. I think for a lot of people, ISIS sort of sprung into your consciousness fully formed in like 2013 or 2014. And it was like this new terrifying force I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where they actually came from, because I think people don't necessarily know that ISIS, in some senses, existed for a long time, and they just evolved and sort of name and brand like some awful product you might purchase. Exactly. So the uh, spend a minute on the on the naming. There's lots of debates. Is it ISIL? Is it ISIS? Is it just the Islamic State? Uh, They started out as Al Qaeda in Iraq. So this is in the early 2000s, and they were led by a guy by the name of Zarqawi, right. <laughs> who was part of al-Qaeda. Right. Uh, he found himself on the wrong end of a uh, U.S. bomb uh, in the Iraq uh, war, and thanks to a lot of good work by our intelligence mm-hmm. and uh, community in the military. Uh, so they started out as al-Qaeda in Iraq and underwent a series of splits from the so-called mothership of al-Qaeda back in Afghanistan and Pakistan. And as you said, they underwent a resurgence in 2013 and 2014. And what they did is they exploited the Sunni grievances, the Sunni minority in Iraq, exploited those grievances and were able to, frankly, roll through Iraq over the last couple of years because the Iraqi government had not been addressing the grievances of, right. of those communities. And so they were able to exploit that and 
garner uh, some support and intimidate others. And they've also now been able to use to great effect, as we said, social media to get their message out. So they underwent a whole series of transformations in their naming, al-Qaeda in Iraq to uh, the Islamic State uh, in Iraq and the Levant, ISIL to the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, ISIS, uh, to just the Islamic State. Mm-hmm. And uh, so whatever you call them, I like to call them the so-called Islamic yeah. State because <laughs> I don't like to give them the benefit of their own naming and branding. What we found is we need a coalition to combat them. Right. Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, pick one, buddy. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you about drones because I feel like drones went from super secret effective tool a decade plus ago mm-hmm. to, in some ways, the global symbol of all U.S. counterterrorism policy. And I think, you know, there, there's a couple components to the question, but I guess, you know, I think some people think of drones as a policy rather than a tool. And I'm wondering what, how you view them and what, what and this is a weird question, but what would you say the benefits are yeah. of a drone versus, say, conventional military force, bomb, airplane, whatever? So... There's a few things about this, and you're right. There's, there's been they've been mystified, and there's pluses and minuses. The benefits, uh, and when we talk about drones, what we're talking about are unmanned aerial vehicles, really. And sometimes they have a purely intelligence collection function. In other words, looking at and taking pictures on the ground and seeing. Uh, and being able to get a picture of what's happening on the ground. And sometimes they can be used uh, in the way a traditional military fighter jet would be used in terms of um, dropping a bomb. And in either case, you don't have a pilot in the seat who's at risk flying over that territory. So the plus is it it enables our uh, military members to not put themselves in as much harm's way. Now, what critics would say, and I think this is a fair point, is it distances us uh, as leaders, as policymakers, as human beings from the effects of war and killing. And I think that's a pretty important and forceful point to make and is one we've got to be mindful of, especially as this technology takes off Mm -hmm. and countries and, frankly, non-state actors are acquiring this technology. Now, one of the things we found is the technology is such that you can be pretty precise, not foolproof, but you can be pretty precise in trying to disrupt a particular threat. But you've got to do this in a way that is mindful that, you know, you don't want to abuse this mm-hmm. uh, technology. And the other thing we, we found is a, a benefit is it, it keeps us from having to deploy large numbers of troops and putting our people in harm's way in order to address a threat that's coming at us. So there's a great role for the technology, but we got to be mindful that um, you don't want it to be your master. Right. Good point. Depending on what you read or who you read, drones are either the most precise tool we have in the arsenal. You know, I've read reports that you can use a drone and you drop a hellfire with a payload small enough to like kill the bad guy in one room and not the individual mm-hmm. in the other room. Like, so that's sort of one way they're described. Or you read reports that they lead to massive civilian casualties all the time, right? The Intercept in particular reported that over a period of time, drone strike casualties were not, were mostly not the intended target mm-hmm. um, and that we were targeting cell phones on individuals and that was leading to this. I was wondering if you could talk about that a bit and the idea you know, there's, the, uh, there's an idea that drone strikes can create more terrorists than we remove from the battlefield. And, and 
related to that, you guys made a decision to release civilian casualties statistics from strikes outside of Iraq and Afghanistan. And that was eight questions in a row. <laughs> I'll try. So this question about um, do they create more terrorists than they stop? Right. It's a fair critique. And it goes to the point I made before, which is, you know, are we having too much distance from the fight mm-hmm. and impersonalizing it such that um, we don't have to take responsibility for the impacts, the second and third order effects of using this technology. And that's why it's important to be as transparent as possible about the use of the technology and its effects, because it's only in doing that that we in the government can hold ourselves accountable and be held accountable for those effects. Look, nothing's foolproof. And we hold ourselves, and under the Obama administration, held ourselves to the highest standard we can hold ourselves, which is near certainty that deploying that technology and using that weapon will not harm civilians. And that was a conscious decision President Obama made as a way to to make sure, as I said, that the technology doesn't become our master. Mm -hmm. And so we made a decision to release these statistics and to issue an executive order that requires the government to do that every year. And importantly also, in compiling those statistics, to not just rely on government information. So you cited uh, some studies done uh, by those outside the government. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty important to get that information and put it in the mix when we're doing our reports, when the government's doing its reports. And that's because, amazingly, this may come as a surprise to your listeners, but the government doesn't always have all the information, (laughs) particularly in areas of conflict that are safe havens for terrorists. It's particularly where we in the U.S. government are not on the ground. We don't have infrastructure. Sometimes we don't have a functioning government that we're working with to combat that terrorism threat. So sometimes non-governmental organizations, human rights organizations, can get into places where the U.S. government isn't and uh, get some information that helps us understand the impact of the use of that uh, of that tool. So it's pretty important to be trans- as transparent as possible about it, but need to remember that we're never going to, the government's never going to be able to be 100% transparent because to do so would then be to mm-hmm. be telling the very terrorists we're trying to stop what we're doing. Right. Switching gears again, cybersecurity terrifies me. Um, you have <laughs> Russia, Russia hacking the Clinton campaign, the DNC, the North Koreans hack Sony, the Chinese are sitting on my social security number because they hacked the Office of Personal Management. Yep. Billions of records from Yahoo, Target, name your company. Do I need to go live in a cabin in Montana to solve this problem? Or what? how worried should we be? What can people do to protect themselves? And what, what can the government do to protect individuals? So this is the area that is probably the fastest growing uh, threat that we see. The cybersecurity threats and this issue has evolved probably more rapidly than anything else I saw in the government in, in my time there. And it across all measures, so in terms of the malicious actors out there from nation states like Russia, Iran, mm-hmm. China, you name it, to non-state actors, terrorists, criminals, hacktivists, they're all getting into the game and using cyber to whatever effect right. they're trying to perpetrate. The techniques they're using are expanding 
wildly, right? So we've seen destructive attacks, right? So mm-hmm. North Korea turned the Sony computers into bricks sitting on desks <laughs> in uh, the, the uh, Sony Pictures headquarters. Uh, we've seen uh, what they call DDoS attacks against our financial institutions, taking them uh, sometimes offline. So the techniques are getting more severe, and the way they're deploying them is getting more sophisticated, right? So malware you can buy online. There's a really low barrier to entry. So across all these landscapes, the the threat is escalating. And, you know, I spent every morning when I was uh, in government participating in something called the President's Daily Brief. We would meet with the President in the Oval Office and talk through the threats we were seeing. And what I saw in my time was the number of times I was raising cyber threats with mm-hmm. the president during my portion of that meeting escalated over yeah. time. And so, you know, how do we get ahead of this? Uh, I don't think moving to a cabin is going to do it because, <laughs> okay. uh, you know, you're going to interact with the wired world somewhere along the way. So some of the stuff we can do to protect ourselves are actually the most basic things you can think of. And my team used to criticize me for using this phrase. They didn't like it. But Basic cyber hygiene is actually really, really important. Doing things like setting up two-factor authentication on your cell phone and in your email account, you know, making sure you're using products that um, are being patched all the time. All of this stuff is stuff we've got to do. But at the end of the day, uh, I think what people are going to hear more about going forward is something called secure by design. In other words, we got to change our orientation to one in which we're building in security to everything we're doing rather than kind of patching after the fact. Mm-hmm. Because as we exist now in a world of the Internet of Things, you got billions of devices that are connected to the Internet. Sometimes you don't even know about it um, when you're buying this device. And if we're not building in security at the front end, we're just compounding our vulnerability. Right. So given that you know more about cyber threats we face than, like, most people on the planet, how do you feel about President Trump using an an unprotected Android phone and uh, dealing with a missile crisis in the middle of the Mar-a-Lago restaurant? Is that a good cyber practice or bad? I'd I'd say that uh, he probably needs to um, take some advice from your basic cyber hygiene folks. (laughs) Go to the skiff, buddy. Yeah. Um, In the wake of the San Bernardino attack, which... I was listening to a very good speech you gave, which is on the Lawfare blog podcast, if people want to double geek out. Um, <laughs> I had almost forgotten it was the biggest attack since 9-11. Mm-hmm. That is chilling. Uh, there was a there was a dust-up between Apple and the FBI about access to the shooter's cell phones. Mm-hmm. The FBI wanted Apple to create a software patch, essentially let them unlock that phone. Apple said, no, that's a backdoor that could put everyone at risk. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little about that dispute and how you guys manage these stronger and stronger encryption than, you know, if, if you came down one way or the other at the time and if that's changed today, given how quickly this debate has progressed. So I think that this is an area that is, frankly, one of the most complex policy areas that I dealt with, right? There are two at the top of this list, encryption and the Syria problem, uh, uh, yeah. probably the two of the most difficult policy debates I was part of. You know, the Encryption debate, I think sometimes we we got a little bit far afield on this question of was it impossible to unlock the phone or or for technology companies to comply with court orders and when they used to comply with the Mm -hmm. court order, but now we're designing the technology such that it can't be complied with. And so I think we got a little off track in, in debating is it impossible or not. 
where we need to take the conversation is what we were trying to do at the end of the Obama administration is come together and, and talk about what is in our shared interest. In our shared interest is not letting terrorists abuse the platforms that this country has created for tremendous social good. And so once we try and come together on the the shared goal that we have as patriots, I think we can make more progress. But we really did get uh, kind of far afield. My own view on this is that, you know, we have as a country over centuries dealt with the advance of technology mm-hmm. and applied the principles in our constitution to that, right? And we have a court system that is responsible for weighing the competing public goods. And there are really competing public goods here. The public good of privacy, the public good of making sure that law enforcement can do its job. And we shouldn't abandon that framework, mm-hmm. um, even as we're dealing with more and more complex technology. I mean, how much did the Snowden disclosures make those conversations harder with technology companies? They made them uh, pretty hard uh, initially. And over time, the kind of Snowden hangover, as we called it, uh, has dissipated a little bit, but isn't completely gone. I think it made a lot of companies who heretofore had been cooperating with law enforcement because at bottom, these are patriotic folks who, again, don't want to see harm done to people uh, or to see their platforms abused. It made it harder for them to cooperate with law enforcement because there was created this adversarial gap. And that's not good in the long term for government to have an adversarial relationship with a huge sector mm-hmm. of uh, the United States, both as citizens and the economy. Yeah, it got to like showdown territory, and I just didn't think the government was going to win that PR war. No, um, definitely not. <laughs> you were born in Boston. I was. You grew up in Newton, Mass. Go Pats. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the Boston bombing happened on your third week at the White House. Yes. Uh, I had just left the White House when that happened. And I remember like streaming the police scanner on my laptop and feeling so frustrated and helpless that this was happening to to our fucking city, as David Ortiz would say. I I wonder what it was like for you to just step into this job and watch the city that you grew up in and you loved and, and being from Boston and dealing with this. Yeah, it was a really tumultuous time. As you said, it was my third week on the job. And, um, you know, in many respects, that week on the job uh, that I had that began on Monday morning when the bombs went off on Patriot's Day in April in 2013 to the end of that week with the manhunt resolving and everything that happened in between kind of encapsulated the breadth and craziness that was the job uh, I occupied. So dealing with the Boston Marathon bombing, was one piece of that week. I mean, I remember starting that week on a Monday morning, convening the deputies of the national security agencies Mm -hmm. around the Situation Room table because we were dealing with the emergence of a flu, a new strain of flu coming out of China. And we were really worried (laughs) that we were going to have a pandemic on our hands. That was my morning. I then was later (laughs) on the phone with my counterpart from Great Britain, who was at the time Prime Minister Cameron's um, equivalent of me, his Homeland Security Advisor. And I looked up at my television in the lower suite in my cave-like office to see CNN blaring a headline that bombs had gone off in the city of Boston. I immediately hung up the phone, dialed Bob Mueller, then the FBI director, 
dialed John Brennan, the CIA director, and a number of others to figure out what do we know, what has happened. Mm -hmm. And 10 minutes later, I found myself in the Oval Office briefing President Obama about what we knew, which was not a whole hell of a lot at that point. We were worried that there were other bombs on the rest of the marathon route. We were worried that this was part of a larger plot. And we're worried about what we were in for next. And we began to talk about um, what we understood at the time, what could and uh, should the president say uh, to the American people, because there was tremendous uncertainty. I convened the principals of the Homeland Security Council that afternoon in the Situation Room and by phone, wherever we could get cabinet secretaries to talk about what should we do with the threat level, et cetera. And the rest of the week went like that, but also interspersed in that week was, with many people forget this, there was a ricin attack on Congress. Live ricin specimens had been mailed to Congress members the next day. So I was talking to uh, the head of the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, about what, what should we be telling the public about ricin. There was tornadoes going through the Midwest. There was an explosion at a chemical plant in West Texas. And later that week, on early Friday morning, overnight, I got a call from the sit room at about 1 a.m., the Situation Room, and they said that there had been a carjacking in Boston, in Cambridge, actually. And at the time, I knew that the FBI was looking at a number of suspects and trying to track down the Boston bombers. We we were referring to them as white hat and black hat because we some citizens had turned in their cell phone camera uh, footage and we got a good shot of the people we thought were the bombers and I had a series of telephone calls and at 3 a.m. I found myself going back into the West Wing and after talking to Bob Mueller who told me that one of the bombers was dead and the other one was on the run I decided I needed to wake up the president. So I found myself on 3 a.m., early Friday morning, calling President Obama out of a sound sleep and telling him that one of the bombers was on the run and we had a potential public safety issue because we didn't know where he was going or if he was going to be undertaking more plots. And as everyone knows, the story ended later that day on Friday when um, that manhunt resolved. And... It was a crazy time. I was worried on the day of the bombing because my my twin brother, uh, I knew, was going to see the race and was lining the finish line. My oldest brother lived right near the finish line. So uh, there were some unsettling moments. Yeah, my brother and his wife were way, way too close for comfort. That call at 3M, is that like an update? Then you guys just kind of catch up, like what else is new? <laughs> like, yeah. How does that go? Yeah, that was, uh, luckily I didn't have to do that that much. But as you know, the president uh, was a real night owl. So yeah. you could be sure that when you were talking to him late at night, he, he wasn't... Uh, wasn't close to bedtime, but at 3 a.m. I knew yeah, I, was, I was waking him up. God, you guys had a brutal 2013. I, I left just in time from that place. You really did. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for your <laughs> yeah, help. You're welcome. Do you, someone asked me the other day what the scariest meeting I ever sat in was, and it's very <laughs> hard. Like, I was in one one-thousandth of the scary meetings you were in, but, you know, there's a couple buckets. Like, the pandemic meetings were yeah. terrifying. Yeah. The I remember being in a meeting after the um, Fukushima disaster and someone mentioning that we were trying to fly a drone over it, but we weren't sure if it would melt in the air. That was a frightening moment. Basic counterterrorism threat conversations around major holidays. I mean, was there a moment that 
stands out to you that was just the most terrifying? One of the ones is one I can't talk about, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Now we we weathered it. So in twenty five well, years, we'll talk about. It. Yes, exactly. We'll what was striking to me is the number of those situations that I was in, and the and the sheer variety of the threats that we faced. And you know, thanks to a lot of great work by people. You know, there's a there's a lot that was avoided and disrupted that people will never know about mm-hmm. because of work of uh, the law enforcement and the intelligence community. But uh, it can be pretty sobering to understand and see the intelligence that there's a lot of folks out there trying to do us harm. But the good news is, I think we've got the better end of the uh, fight there. That's I agree with you, and, and thank you to all the law enforcement, counterterrorism, and other professionals who may be out there or listening or or otherwise engage on these issues. Uh, Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you. This is fascinating for me. I miss talking to you guys so much. Everyone hears me like, sound like I need some more friends. So thank you again (laughs) for coming in. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 